Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, board games, and war games. Today we're going to be talking about collectible card games, also known as CCGs. I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and with me, as always... I'm the co-host, you can call me Ed, my pronouns are they and them, except, look at me, I am the host now. Yes, Ed's going to be running today's episode. They have done the research. They know what they're talking about. They play more of these games than I do. In theory, I know what I'm talking about. You know what you're talking about. But before we get on to the topic at hand, let's do the segment, The Weekend Hobby. Over the last week, I have played a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. Gotten in two solid sessions with groups on the weekend, on my, yeah, on my weekday games. Both are set in Eberron. The first group has, really, they just killed a troll that was guarding a bridge. And got set up for the next quest line that they're going to be on. The other group finished their first quest line. One of the players had to bail, so we're going to be down a party member, but I think we can find someone to make that up. And they're moving on to the second major quest line. Also, I got a late Christmas gift that, you know, shipping and everything. So I now own a copy of Dune Imperium. The games must flow. The games must flow. Yeah. We'll probably need to play that sooner rather than later. Likely have a chance until later rather than sooner. Thanks, Omicron. Thanks, coronavirus. I got nothing snappy to add in there. Well, what have you done this week? Um, unless you count work as being hobby, pretty much nothing. Work went from about zero to a hundred in the space of a day. So that's pretty much all I've been doing. I guess maybe you could say it's tangentially related since someday I want to make some kind of fully electrified tabletop gaming board that has lots of special effects and lighting and all that. D and D got canceled at the last moment, but oh well. Boo. Boo whoever caused that to get cancelled at the last moment. And then we played a a game that we'll probably eventually talk about at some point during this episode. But it's been a very hobby-less week. Hmm. That's sad. Yep. Honestly, I, I wanted to do more, but I'm just so exhausted by the time I get home from work that I'm just like, nope, not not doing anything. Yes, and once again, boo that person who canceled the D&D session. Boo, you know who you are. Boo. But it's it's fine. D&D gets rescheduled all the time, I don't mind. Yeah, I have rescheduled multiple games in the last month, so. Not one to talk. So, our main topic today, then. Gather round, children, and excuse my coughing, because my time has come, and it's... I'll tell you the story of CCGs. What are CCGs? Where do they come from? Why do they use cards? I guess that's my, my cue to take over. CCGs, also known as TCGs, depending on what flavor of nerd you are, I guess, either means collectible card game or trading card game. And these are games that exclusively use cards as their mechanics and they're different from something like an lcg or a living card game and that there is no 
common pool of cards or common set that you're drawing from. These are cards that you purchase individually or in randomized lots, and your goal is to build a deck and somehow defeat your opponent using that deck of cards that you've built. Okay. First, gotta talk a little bit about the history of cards themselves. Yes, tell me about cards. Playing cards, like a lot of things in our world, most likely invented in China around probably the 9th century. They're not entirely sure, but that's the most likely origin point. They kind of spread around Asia and eventually made it to Egypt. And the most popular type of card deck formation that was used in Egypt was called the Mameluke deck. And those eventually made their way into Europe around the 1300s. But like the origin of, of playing cards themselves, we don't really know when the Mameluke cards made their way from Egypt into Europe. The only way that we know that they even got there was because in the 1300s, various kingdoms and dukedoms uh, decided that they did not like these new fads of playing cards and started issuing uh, decrees banning the playing of card games. So that's how we know that they made their way to Europe is because around the 1300s, people were like, nope, stop doing that. Oh, I, I guess they thought that normal card games were satanic at the time. Yep, satanic, gambling, you know, you should be praying instead of playing cards and generally having a good time. And I mean, in the 1300s, honestly, what else are you going to do to have a good time? You could you could drink whiskey and try not to die of plague. Yeah, I think not dying of plague was one of the big activities of the era. So, like today. Yep. Except now we can't even play we can't even play cards because of the plague. We just played cards online this morning. Yeah, I was just going to say the uh, the Germans in the 1300s, they didn't have the internet. The, no tabletop simulator for those 1300 Germans. Which is a shame because I'm sure they would have had some great Euro-style board games then. If I had a a soundboard, that's where the rim shot would go. So, playing cards, they made their way into uh, Europe sometime before the 1300s when all the monarchs started getting pissed off about them. There's a couple of different styles. The most common one that we know of is the French style. That's the one that has hearts, diamonds, spades, and clubs. And then the uh, four face cards. There's also... As as different from the Irish style? Um, I don't actually know if there is an Irish style of playing card. Yeah, no, it, it's got the, what, the hearts, the horseshoes, the clovers, the lucky stars, the red balloons. That's, that's cereals. Oh. Oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, there's probably some kind of game you could play with Lucky Charm cereal since it has all those interesting shapes. Don't play with your food. Or you could, or you could just kind of, like, place out your cereal pieces to look like playing cards because they, they kind of have similar shapes. So in addition to the French style, there's also German, Swiss, Italian, and Spanish styles of cards. They all have four suits. They're usually pretty similar. Like, you know, the club will get changed to an oak leaf or something similar to that. And then they have different layouts for what kinds of cards are inside a standard deck. Um, but for whatever reason that I did not see, really, uh, the French style was the one that stayed uh, in popularity. If I had to guess, probably because around the time that playing cards really start to find their footing, France is the cultural overlord of Europe. So whatever France is doing, 
the rest of Europe is going to do. And so they see those French cards and they're like, oh, let's be fancy and cultured. Let's play the French style cards. Mm, France is going for a culture victory. Pretty much. How'd that work out for them? Is French spoken internationally? Sometimes I'd say it kind of it kind of worked a little bit. There's a little bit of a hiccup around the French Revolution. And then there, there's these guys called the Germans. They started getting rowdy. Stuff happened. It's a shame that France is no longer the lingua franca of the world. But I guess to their credit, they still have, I think, the largest army in Europe. I think they still beat out the Germans. So France, you're, you're still in the game. Yes, now if only they could actually beat out the Germans. So, there's not a whole lot of change that's gone on uh, with these tr- uh, with these playing cards. Since then, um, the Joker cards got added in a little bit later. But the CCGs that we know today are a convergence of traditional playing cards and what were originally known as trade singular cards. Um, these are an early type of business card that was used prior to the 18th century. They started off as just little slips of paper or parchment that had the name of a business or a tradesperson on them and something like directions on how to get to wherever their shop was before modern address systems were created. As papermaking technology advanced, you started getting cards that were more visually interesting. They would have like some kind of intricate logo or a picture, or I guess a drawing, of the owner of the business, more legible directions. And so as these fancier cards started being produced more and more, uh, the demand for the cards themselves and for artists to produce material for the cards started to increase. And then once you get to the early 19th century, you get color lithography and multicolor printing, which allows for even more intricate designs. And this is where the idea of collecting the trade cards themselves starts to come about because people are like, Hey, these little advertising things, these are pretty neat. You know, we should keep them and I'll give you two of Joe's tannery for something else or something like that. So once uh, businesses and trades started seeing that people were keeping these cards and not just getting rid of them once they had made contact with whatever trades person they were trying to get hold of, Companies, particularly cigarette and candy companies, saw that these cards were getting quite popular and they decided to add them in their products as both a prize and as a form of advertising. So cigarette companies, they would put a piece of stiff cardstock inside the cigarette packs, which would help strengthen the package and keep them from collapsing in transport. And these would usually have some kind of elaborate insignia or logo for the company and say you know, smoke these cigarettes, and it was just a lot more uh, memorable than other advertising. I suppose for a lot of people, it was also one of the cheapest forms of, like, decorative art that they could get. Yes. Yeah, so if you had if you had fancy trade cards, you know, for the merchant down the street, you could pin that up on your wall and be like, yep, that adds some culture to my, uh, my depressing one-room tenement apartment that apartment still had cheaper rent than the one than the same building would today that's a distinct possibility (laughs) 
yeah, so the uh, the cigarette companies they started they started off with ads uh, for their own companies and products, and then they started to add other things that people would find popular, particularly like uh, baseball players are kind of where the idea of trading cards begin. Um, you also get things like flags of the world, where it would have flags from various countries and kingdoms that were around at the time. Pretty much anything where you could have like a set and would drive people to collect all of them rather than having it be just a random assortment of prize items. It was something that was like sequential or otherwise went together in a group and you'd want to have all of them. So you could say, I have this entire baseball team or I have all these flags. So that's cards. Yeah, those are the first ones. Um, Baseball cards became the first kind of trading cards as we know them. Uh, that started around the 1860s, coinciding with the rise of professional baseball. And by the turn of the century, in 1900, they're very popular, so they started to kind of show up everywhere. And they've been they've been around more or less, kind of in the same the same form pretty much since then. It just expands out to different kinds of sports, um, baseball cards in particular. They use them to track stats and whatnot. So it's in addition to being a a trading card item, you have them kind of as a record of what happened during those particular seasons. Or if you have like a particular player you want, you can look and see, you know, how does their career track over the course of, you know, X number of years. Yeah, because baseball is a game of math and great entertainment and people love it because of this. Oh, wait, no, they don't. Oh, dude, that's harsh. I mean, it's better than football. Both of them are bad. But we also know that hockey is the king of all all team sports. I'm sorry. You said hockey? You didn't say curling? Ooh. That's a that's a good one. I, now I need to know, are curling trading cards a thing? If not, can we make them? Oh, they most definitely are. Sweet. You heard that here live on the podcast. Uh, curling trading cards are definitely a thing. Well, I know what to get you for your birthday. <laughs> yeah, curling is the superior sport. I just forget that it's one that exists. Uh, so does the rest of the world when the Winter Olympics aren't happening. That's very true. Alright, so we've got these cards, and they're popular, and they're everywhere, and they have baseball players on them and other sports on them. Probably not curling yet. That'll come later, I'm sure. No, most of these look like they're kind of like from the 70s and the 80s. Okay, so curling won't show up until the 70s or the 80s. So how does how do these trading cards become a game? When does that happen? So there have been there have been kind of like experiments with making making trading cards into games, but none of them really kind of took off. It was just kind of like a thing of hey, you have these cards. Why not try and play some kind of game with them? But the CCG, as we know it, was invented in 1993 by Richard Garfield, who, if you're listening to this and don't know who Richard Garfield is, uh, welcome to planet Earth. I'm sorry, 2022 is the year of your birth. I mean, Richard, he, he's a orange cat that likes lasagna, right? That's how I always picture him. I don't even know if I know what he actually looks like. looks like, but... When I hear the name Richard Garfield, for some reason, I always just picture Garfield the cat. So, 
Richard Garfield, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> I saw a picture of him. He looks like a normal dude. Like a normal dude. Awesome. Richard Garfield, totally normal dude. And I would say probably always and forever will be the undisputed king of CCG design. That seems fair. Possibly, but he was also the first one to do it, and really everything that has come after it is just riffs on his original design. So it's possible that somewhere down the line somebody's going to come up with another innovative CCG style or mechanic that comes along and kind of replaces what he did. But every game that we're going to talk about in one way or another is directly inspired by Richard Garfield's original design for Magic the Gathering. Okay, so he's the Tolkien of collectible card games. Everyone's either inspired by him or reacting to him. Yes. And so you can see his work even by its absence in other people's designs. Yes, that is a v- extremely apt comparison. So um, in the earlier 90s, Richard had designed another game called Mana Clash um, when he was kind of working as his own independent game designer that never actually ended up getting published. Um, eventually he started working for Wizards of the Coast and wanted to publish another game called Robo Rally, which I'm sure will show up at another point. I've played it. In our podcast. Is it good? It's complicated. I've heard that it's complicated, but also a glorious disaster when it really gets going. Yeah, that's, that is exactly how I would describe the process of playing it. Awesome. Yeah, so... Richard, he wanted he wanted Wizards to publish and produce Robo Rally, but they were not necessarily sold on the idea, and so they came up with kind of a trade where they say, hey, if you design us a game that's simple and easy to produce, uh, we will do Robo Rally for you. So that's how Magic the Gathering came into being. Uh, he, Richard was inspired by D&D, um, his earlier Mana Clash game that he had designed, a board game from 1977 called Cosmic Encounter, which primarily used uh, cards as playing mechanic, and a baseball simulation called Stratomatic. So, Magic was designed as a game that was small, fast, and intended to be playable between rounds of larger war games or games that you could set up at other various nerd conventions. And you didn't need a whole lot of space. You could just find a corner on the floor somewhere at the convention hall and play a game. MTG Alpha came out in 1993 and almost immediately sold out. Stores had a really hard time keeping this game in stock and also helped launch the 1990 CCG craze. Um, If you're our age or older and were part of the gaming community at that point, you probably remember there were a lot of CCG games. Some of the examples outside of Magic, you've got Star Wars. Um, that one I got fairly deep into. There was Star Trek. There was the unfortunately named Jihad CCG game, which was based on the White Wolf uh, vampire series. There's Legends of the Five Rings, SimCity, Spellfire, X-Files, Battletech, uh, Dragon Dice, which was kind of a attempt to fuse dice and trading card games. Uh, there was another one called Hecatomb, which was interesting in that it had Pentagon-shaped cards rather than just your regular playing card rectangles. Ooh, that 
is an interesting concept, but I have to imagine that that adds a lot of extra expense to the production. Yeah, I think that was I think that was part of why it didn't really go anywhere. It was around for a while. They had like two two different expansions. The game was centered mostly around sci-fi and fantasy horror, so you had like Cthulhu and UFOs and demons and stuff like that. I believe the actual sides of the cards, because they had five sides, um, also came into account as opposed to which side something was happening on for the card. Um, that one I haven't really been able to find a whole lot of old material for. That one seems to have died away pretty completely, but who knows, maybe I'll find one of these long-lost CCGs and it'll show up on the podcast again at some point. And I remember there being multiple Star Wars ones, because there was the Star Wars ones by Decipher Games, and then when Phantom Menace came out, there was another completely different uh, CCG that was just for that. Yep, there was the Star Wars CCG, which up until 1999 was the number two trading card game uh, behind Magic. That one was around until the early 2000s, as the card craze started to kind of wind down. And they tried to reboot, tried to reboot the game with uh, Young Jedi, which was entirely focused on the Phantom Menace. That game fizzled out pretty pretty quickly. I don't remember the rules on how to play that one. They tried to keep the Star Wars going for a few more years after um, they re- released some sets that were about that were based on the Phantom Menace. And then I think by the time Attack of the Clones came out, the game had pretty much up and died, and Decipher lost the license at that point. What else? There's also a Monty Python CCG, uh, which involved having to act out lines from movies and sketches, which if you were part of our group, that was kind of a thing you did already, so it just gamified something we were already doing. There's an Austin Powers CCG, Basically, if you had any kind of license that could be sold for any amount of money and had even the smallest audience, there was probably a CCG for it. So, like I said, up until 99, Star Wars was number two behind Magic. And then Pokemon came out. I think before I really got into Magic, Pokemon was the one that I was most involved with pretty much from the beginning. Um, I got really big into the competitive scene for that. I went to the Pokemon leagues that they would have at our FLGS every week. Um, I still have the badge pins they would give out for, you know, X number of wins as part of a season. And that game is still going. And I tried to go back to it with their um, online version that they have. And man, it is a different game from 20 odd years ago. (laughs) Yeah, I know some people who still play it or just recently got into it. And looking at the cards, I have no idea what it's doing. Yeah, it's very different. I will say I do not like the new art styles that they're going with for the cards. They're very hard to read. They're not intuitive, but I'm sure it all the colors and all the very energetic artwork appeals to their audience, which is going to be a lot younger than your your average gamer. Honestly, we should probably do an episode on Pokemon trading card game at some point. Yeah. I've I've still got all of my original cards. Uh, We have a box that my wife bought a couple of years ago. Well, I know someone who 
knows enough about it to be an excellent guest. So that'll be a future episode. Look forward to that. In theory, I want to go to our game store on one of these Saturdays and go and try and actually play in one of the competitive events they have and just absolutely get thrashed by like an eight-year-old. Yeah, that'd be fun. And even though it's it's not necessarily one that I would probably get in super heavy again, it does make me happy to see that there are still so many players of this game, you know, so many years down the line. All right, so we've got Magic, we've got Pokemon. All right, so Pokemon rises up to the number two spot and is kind of constantly in competition for number one with Magic. I doubt it'll ever actually overtake it. Um, it did, however, spur a lawsuit between Nintendo and Wizards of the Coast over the patent for trading card games. Um, that patent was originally awarded to Richard Garfield in 1997, and he then transferred it over to Wizards. And so there was a lot of back and forth between the two companies over whether or not you could patent this type of gameplay mechanic, because if they did successfully patent it, you basically couldn't make another game in this style, which, I mean, Nintendo's got a point. That lawsuit was eventually settled in 2003 out of court, and none of the details were made public, so I can't actually tell you uh, what came of that lawsuit. So now we're into the early 2000s. Uh, the original CCG card craze has started to die down. Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! gets launched by Konami in 99, and then comes into the U.S. in 2002. Um, unfortunately, of all the card games that we're talking about today, Yu-Gi-Oh! is by far the one that I have the least experience with. All I know is that it has trap cards. Yep, there's three different kinds of cards. There's uh, spells, traps, and monsters. Similar to magic, you have a life total uh, that you're trying to protect. And then, you know, you're using your spells and your monsters and your trap cards to deplete your opponent's life total to win the game. Yu-Gi-Oh! is kind of number three of the big three. Um, I always see people playing it anytime we're at our... uh, local game store, and as soon as Magic finishes up, a giant crowd of people shows up to play Yu-Gi-Oh! So, good on them for making a product that has stuck around. By the time Yu-Gi-Oh! came out, I was pretty heavy into Magic, and didn't really care much for the very stylized anime aesthetic of the game, so I just never got into it. Same. They've released a couple of versions of the game for Switch, which, if they ever go on sale, I might try. But I've never really had a much of a reason to go get into it. I think another reason that you and I never really got into it is that we were too old for the cartoon that came out with it, uh, which was not the case when the Pokemon cartoon came out. Yep. We were the correct age for that, but we were too old for the Yu-Gi-Oh! cartoon just a couple years later. Yep, so that brings us to another element of CCGs is that they are extremely audience-centric. You need to build an audience fast, it needs to be big, and you have to keep them around. If you don't do that, your CCG is going to crash and burn, which is why there were so many of them. I think there were like 35 games released in 1995 alone, and I couldn't tell you any of them that have actually survived this long. So you've got you've to hit that demand kind of right at the perfect time to make sure that your game is going to stick around. Magic did it by being the original. The first. Um, Pokemon did it by latching onto 
an absolute phenomenon of a pop culture thing. As franchises go, Pokemon is consistently in the, like, top ten for global sales and recognition and stuff, so. Yep. Pokemon is like Star Wars. It's just part of the cultural mythology. It's never going to go away. You're going to have to go, I don't know how many generations before people stop forgetting about it. And with the way that corporate IP works, as long as these companies exist, they're going to own the IP and produce material for it. And it's it's like the coronavirus. It's here to stay. Sorry, that was a dark joke. (laughs) And then, unfortunately, I don't know what real cultural grip Yu-Gi-Oh got other than maybe getting the anime crowd that hadn't or that was not interested in Pokemon or maybe slightly too old for Pokemon at that point and wanted something that was kind of anime themed. It was the anime grip plus a more comprehensive and changing play style than uh, Pokemon because I, I Pokemon is a very is tends to be pretty straightforward and uh, I don't think Yu-Gi-Oh is as much. There's a lot more different things you can do playing it. Yeah, my apologies to the audience. Yu-Gi-Oh didn't get a whole lot of research time. There was a lot of games that I had to go through. No, we're not apologizing. We don't care about Yu-Gi-Oh. That is this the official stance of this podcast. <laughs> you can come and duel me if you want. That's harsh. As of the as of the mid two thousands, those were the three that dominated CCGs. They've never really stopped being produced. Um, new games are released every once in a while, and if it's not one of the big three, they kind of fall into little niche categories. Um, I remember seeing that there's like a My Little Pony CCG that was out there for a while. Uh, there's a Mega Man one, so rather than being one that tries to grab a big massive audience they're trying to cater to smaller groups that are like hey i kind of wish we had a card game for our our particular fandom and for the most part there hasn't been a huge amount of change in how ccgs work they have some fairly universal mechanics you're going to have a resource for magic it's your land for pokemon it's going to be your energy cards Again, sorry, Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't know what your resource is other than maybe... Actually, I think your deck is your uh, resource in Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, Battletech, you have various elements of like military logistics that you use as your resource to put down battle mechs, and you're trying to protect your deck from being destroyed. Star Wars, you have locations that generate a certain amount of force, and you use those force cards to play your cards to protect your deck. Once your deck is gone, you lose the game. So those elements tend to be fairly universal across CCGs. Um, There's been a couple of interesting outliers. Uh, There was Star Wars Destiny Dice, which kind of goes back to the Dragon Dice thing that Wizards tried early on that bombed where you have collectible dice. Destiny added in cards and plastic dice that had stickers on them. And depending on how you rolled stuff, things happened. I never got into that one, and that game is now dead. Yeah, that game always seemed too... I don't know, I didn't like the dice with stickers on them. Yeah, I didn't either. And then I guess you could also put uh, Dice Masters into this category, since the cards 
cards are sold in randomized lots, as you generally have to do with CCG, um, but it also includes dice. In addition to those with gameplay mechanics, also the way that CCGs are sold are pretty universal. You'll have randomized lots of cards that come in booster packs or big like display packs that have a ton of cards in them. And so you're opening them individually and trying to collect as many of the cards in the set as you can, as opposed to an LCG where you buy the game, you have a common lot of cards that anybody else who buys the game is going to have the exact same set. And you either play with that one set or similar to Star Realms, you, you have the same cards in your deck, but everybody is using their own deck. I guess I should ask, do you have any any questions or any clarifications as far as CCGs that you're... Uh... A CCG is a collectible card game, so it's got cards that you purchase and that can be used in that game. And typically there is a resource and some sort of win condition, usually knocking out your opponent in some manner. Yep. I think one of the interesting things about them, and one of the reasons that they are so successful, is that they typically have a low barrier to entry. Most decks for them cost, usually it's been around $10. I think it might be more now, but historically you could usually buy a starter deck for about 10 bucks at a game store and be good to go, ready to play the game. Yep, that was actually the next item on my outline here as part of the uh, pros of CCG games. They're extremely accessible. Assuming that you're playing a game that's relatively popular, you're almost never going to find an event that you go to and be like, hey, anybody want to play this game? And just hear absolute crickets. Somebody's always going to have a Magic deck, a Yu-Gi-Oh deck, a Pokemon deck with them. Because they're small and portable and the games are easy to set up and play, it's a, a thing that people will just bring with them. Um, if they're going to some kind of game-related event. Uh, like you said, the cost of entry is generally pretty low. Uh, I think Magic Starters are about $15 now for an individual deck. Double that if you're buying a set that comes with two decks, which is a thing that's become uh, more popular. You'll get two decks, usually with some kind of fancy exclusive or foil card in there to uh, help entice you into buying it. And... You're pretty much good to go. You don't need a gigantic table for the most part. You don't need to put together any miniatures or paint anything. You don't have a board and a bunch of pieces that need to be punched and put together. You can go into your store, buy a two-player starter set, and play right there in the shop. You know, as far as playing games, that's about as easy as it gets. And compared to pretty much every other category of game that I've engaged with, CCGs are probably the ones that I've spent the most time and money on, particularly for that reason of the accessibility. Yeah, that's fair enough. There are some cons, though, uh, that go with the genre. Uh, games can be often short-lived if they don't find uh, success within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, the competitive scene uh, is not a low cost of entry. Uh, competitive scene gets very expensive very fast. Uh, for example, the Magic Modern format, which utilizes all the cards that uh, have been introduced since Moradin when they updated the card frame back in, I believe, 2004. The top-ranked decks for the Modern format are 
easily three or four thousand dollars. God damn. Yeah. So if you're trying to go to a tournament and win with one of these decks, there better be some crazy return on investment for you, or this is literally your life's work and it's what you spend your money on. Well, I know Magic for a while had a, like, pro tournament circuit that, you know, cash prizes and stuff. Is that still a thing? Yep, they still do that. They just recently hired um, a new director uh, for their tournaments who is a former pro player so some people are excited about that because rather than just having some company guy running the department they actually have a former pro player in charge Hmm, somebody who kind of knows the knows the scene a little more yep and even if you're not like if you're not doing like pro tour stuff playing in a in a competitive event can still be fairly expensive usually because you're having to go and buy cards on the secondhand markets that develop. And if there's one particular card in a set that people pick up on as being particularly good, that price is going to shoot through the roof. Um, Liliana of the Veil from, I think it was the Innistrad set in Magic, uh, is one that sticks out for me. That card was easily 100 bucks, And... It seemed like every deck that I was playing with at just our local tournaments had one. And if you didn't have one in your deck, you're getting absolutely stomped. Those issues with price and availability can kind of tweak the competitive scene a little bit. There are uh, some other other formats that are less expensive. There's one called Popper, where you can only use cards of the common rarity. Uh, rarity, which... I also forgot to mention earlier is another one of those universal mechanics that you find in CCGs. Rare cards, for the most part, tend to be much more powerful than common cards. One thing I did like about Magic compared to like Pokemon back in the day is that you can find some pretty good common cards in Magic, and they are very much the backbone of your deck. Whereas in something like Pokemon, you really want those rare, big, fancy evolutions to come along and just stomp all of your opponent's Pokemon. That's kind of how the game is built. Magic, the usefulness to rarity curves a bit more even in that sense. Yeah, I would agree with that. Magic has a lot more utility cards. And then another part of that cost is that the games, because they, they're they audience dependent, they have to change constantly in order to keep the fan base interested. Compared to an LCG, you know, you, you send out the LCG box and you're like, okay, here's your game, have fun with it. And then you, know, you guys play it for a while and then maybe a year or two down the line, you're like, okay, I'm done with this game, let's move on to something else. Uh, Wizards and Nintendo, they want you to keep coming back to it over and over and over and over again. So they will have usually some kind of rotating format where every determined amount of time, the set of cards will rotate out, a new set will come out, and if you want to play in the, uh, quote, standard competitive events, usually you have to use cards from within a certain time frame, which helps kind of offset the issue that you have with the modern format in Magic, where it's always like certain cards that are coming up over and over again and get really expensive and hard to find. Your standard rotating format is going to move, it's going to change and move around so you don't have one particular set of cards or one particular combination dominating the entire game. It may dominate for a particular block or a particular season, but it's eventually going to rotate out. 
Yeah, but it does mean you're having to constantly buy new cards. Yeah. Which, I mean, if that's your thing and you're somebody who plays Magic regularly and you keep up with it, you're going to you're going to make back your investment in terms of like, you know, how much time you're playing and, you know, how much fun you're having. If you do drop out of the game for a while, though, it can be very disorienting when you come back in because everything is going to have changed. I played Magic really heavily from the early 2000s up until I graduated high school in 2006. And after that, I really couldn't afford to keep up with the game. So I stopped playing at competitive events and just stuck with the stuff I had. And when I went back or tried to go back, I'm like, "There's this is too complicated. Stuff has changed too much. I'm not as interested. So that amount of constant change made it difficult to go back in. And Wizards just recently changed how their their block formats work. So it used to be you would have like a year where they would have a particular set that they were putting out and there would be three different sets that they were all somehow tied in together. And then, you know, the next year you would have a different one and so on. But now it's every three months or sometimes even sooner, it feels like they're coming out with completely different sets, which as far as how that changes the meta i don't really know um all i do know is that i'm like okay that was cool but now they've completely changed everything up and it feels like they're not really letting the meta kind of find its footing because everything changes so fast i'm sure people have their own opinions on it i mean that could be useful in that it keeps card prices from skyrocketing in the same way if uh there's less time for people to like, lock in what the super amazing card is. Although I'm sure it doesn't take long for people to determine if a card is good or bad. Yeah, but then it could also be a pro in that, you know, you have more cards coming out, there's more experimentation going on with, with the mechanics and all that, and I don't know, it's it's one of those things that's both good and bad. I kind of wish that the game wouldn't move so fast, but I don't work for Wizards, so that's the way it goes. And then kind of my last con is that CCGs tend to have really annoying fan bases. (laughs) The slightest change or doing anything literally to the game will just send people into an absolute hissy fit. And I'm just like, get over it. It's, it's a game. The game will survive. Or if you don't like it, you know, go back to playing the old way or the old block. I don't, I try not to delve too deep into the hardcore fandom of any of these games. Cause after a while I'm like, you know, it's, it's too much. <laughs> it's just a game. Yeah. When you gaze into the neck beard, the neck beard also gazes into you. Exactly. So that's CCG's kind of up until the last 10 years or so. The most interesting change to the format that has really come about is the greater adoption of online and computer-based CCG's. There have been computerized versions of these games almost since the beginning. Uh, Magic has always had some kind of computerized magic where you're either playing against an AI or if you had, if you were a, a fancy lad who had a late 90s internet connection, you could play with people over the internet. Uh, but in 2014, Blizzard came out with Hearthstone, which is their adaptation of Magic the Gathering, uh, but it's set in the World of Warcraft universe. And it's very similar to Magic, but it does make a couple of design choices that actually helped bring me back into CCG gaming and understand the mechanics a little bit better. 
first one is the change in how many cards you can have in your deck. In Hearthstone, you can only have 30 cards with only two copies of each card in the deck. And instead of having mana, you have mana crystals, and each turn you gain one crystal up to a maximum of 10. So regardless of what you're doing, you're always guaranteed a certain amount of resources each turn, and it makes planning out what you're going to do a lot easier. In mana, you have to draw the, you have to draw your lands, and as happened this last uh, week or so, I had a game where in the entire game I drew one land and I could literally do nothing the entire game and I got smoked because I had one land and nothing that I could do. And so having that element in Hearthstone helps keep the game moving and helps make planning much easier. And so eventually when I started drifting back into Magic, it helped with being able to kind of see how how the mana curve works and how to plan plays out better just because I'm not having to deal with the inherent randomness of I don't know how many resources I'm necessarily going to get and that's what I'm worried about and what I'm paying attention to. Hearthstone takes that element out and so I can think more about the strategy and the planning. It helped give me a different view on other games. I suspect it also makes it a lot easier to only have a 30-card deck game when you don't have to worry about resource cards in your deck. Yes. Um, also, the, the limited amount of cards, it helps with being able to see patterns and see what your opponent is doing because they have far fewer cards. And once you see this card cycle through twice, you're going to know, I know that they don't have any more in there. And because you're because you're dealing with less cards overall, it's less possible combinations or less possible tricks that you have to keep track of. So I got really, really deep into Hearthstone for a while, and then they started kind of getting a little bit big-headed with it. They started releasing sets at an extremely fast pace, like even faster than uh, Wizards was doing with Magic, and it just came really hard to keep up with the game, and so I kind of dropped out of it for a little bit. Magic has come out with their own counterpart called MTG Arena. Uh, it's similar to Hearthstone, and apparently seems to be the death knell of the original Magic the Gathering Online, which is what they had used previously. That one I played quite a bit, and it's interesting because it has its own internal economy, where you buy event tickets, which are a dollar each, and you can buy cards on the secondary market using those tickets, and they essentially work like money. One ticket is $1, so if you have a card that's $1, you give the person you're trading with or buying from one ticket, you get the card. And if you have a complete set of cards, you can trade them in with Wizards. They will remove those cards from your account and send you a physical set of those cards, which is actually pretty neat because you can put money into it and if you're somebody who's, you know, a good speculator on CCG games, you can get your money and possibly profit out of it, which is kind of cool. The game mechanically, it really is just the absolute bare bones adaptation of magic you could put onto the computer. And in general, with online games like that, similar to The Crucible, uh, which we've played, uh, it makes the game hard to keep track of because there's no telegraphing or animating of what's actually happening because you can't hear your opponent 
And so things will just happen, and then you kind of have to sort through and see, okay, what actually just happened? Magic Arena gets rid of that, and I feel like it's a lot more playable. People seem to be divided on which game is better or worse. I would I would go with Magic Arena pretty much any other time. And then the last one uh, for the digital game space is Gwent, which was based on the Witcher 3 video game. Uh, had its own little CCG card game built in that you would play as kind of a side quest thing. Uh, it got pretty popular, so they made a digital version of it, which I actually found pretty interesting because it does some interesting things with the CCG format. You have a very limited number of cards at your disposal. You don't draw cards. And the idea is you're trying to get more strength on the field than your opponent. And you're bluffing your way into making your opponent think, there's nothing that I can play that they're either not going to respond to or play to get rid of my cards. So as opposed to doing the resource and life management aspect that a lot of CCGs have, it's essentially a bluffing game. You're trying to convince your opponent that you've got a bigger number than they do. And that was very interesting. I played it for quite a while. It was in beta for several years. And then they came out with Gwent 2.0. They said, we, we've done it. We finished the beta. The game is ready to go in production. And when they did that, they wiped everybody's accounts clean. And the new game is essentially magic. And I hated it. I played it once. I'm like, nope, this is just magic with extra steps. I don't like it. So that was unfortunate because it was a genuinely unique change on the format. And I don't know if it just wasn't popular that way or if some suit somewhere decided we need to be more like magic because that's what's popular. I don't know the, the thought behind that but they destroyed something that was genuinely unique, and that's kind of depressing. I wonder if they thought that there wasn't going to be enough of a market for like new cards and stuff. It's possible. Um, I'm not super familiar with the design space for the old style of Gwent. It's possible that it was a design choice, that the way the game was, there wasn't a whole lot else that they could do with it, which... I mean, fair enough, but they could have left that game up and just said, hey, this is a new game and done something completely different rather than taking down the old one. You seem a little salty about that. Yeah, I I was actually really enjoying it. I'm I'm pretty salty about it. <laughs> it was it was an interesting game, and I haven't really found anything else out there like it. I'm sure somebody out there will probably comment and say, hey, you should try this game, but as far as one that has like widespread popularity and it's actually known, there's probably nothing else like it. Uh, the last the last major development in CTGs that I'm really aware of was uh, Keyforge, also designed by our Lord and Savior Richard Garfield. Um, instead of a deck building mechanic, like pretty much every other game out there has, this one has procedurally generated unique decks. Instead of buying packs of cards, you buy a physical deck. You pay $10, and you get a 60-card deck. Uh, 32-card deck. So you get a 32-card deck, and those cards are forever tied to that deck. They cannot be swapped around. They have to stay within that deck. The goal is to forge three keys, and you're using your cards to generate amber, which if you get six amber, you can forge a key, assuming your opponent's not being a jerk and stealing your amber or making it so you can't forge a key that turn. Yeah, I 
I find Keyforge interesting because it's not about attacking your opponent, although that's certainly viable. It's about resource generation. But it uses a lot of the same mechanics for everything else. Yep. Through playing Keyforge, again, it has also informed kind of the way that I play Magic, since when you're playing Keyforge, you're essentially building an engine and you're trying to generate as much amber as you can and protect it as well as you can from turn to turn. And so rather than necessarily playing against your opponent, it's almost like you're playing against your own deck and you're trying to work with the resources that you have at hand to have the best possible outcome for that turn. So I find that I pay much less attention to what my opponent is doing and I try and focus much more on what's in my own hand and what my own cards can do. And I've started to kind of play magic that way. And it's made a difference, not necessarily in that I'm like winning more or doing better, but it helps similar to Hearthstone with seeing how the mechanics work rather than purely responding to what your opponent's doing. I also need to know what my own deck is going to be able to do and try and make sure that my deck is doing what it was designed to do each and every turn. I would point out that with Keyforge, unlike a lot of the other games, uh, there is only... Keyforge only has the active player doing stuff in a turn. There's no way to counteract spells. There's no way to... No way for the non-active player to do things. So the active player can focus on what they're doing on their turn. And basically, whatever happens, happens on the opponent's turn. And you just have to respond to it when it's your turn to play again. Yeah, most most trading card games have some kind of interrupting mechanic. For Magic, you have Instance. For Star Wars, you have Interrupts. Uh, in Battletech, you have uh, Mission Cards. And then in Yu-Gi-Oh, you've got Trap Cards. Uh, Keyforge doesn't do that, which I think is kind of nice, because <laughs> I don't have to constantly look and see how much mana do they have. Are they going to be able to, you know, counterspell this as soon as I put it out there? It's an interesting design choice, and it's very much a deliberate design choice, which I think is, you know, shows that there's been some learning going on from what previous games have been like. Yep. And it's it's interesting when you play the the card games that have been designed by Richard Garfield, as we have done, and you can kind of see the seeds and the bleed over of mechanics between games, which is kind of fun because you can just see, you know, this is we started at point A and now we're at point B and you can see all the little connecting dots in between, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, CCGs, they're still out there. They're as a game format, they're probably never going to go away. Um, assuming that we all of a sudden don't run out of paper, uh, one of the cons I had listed in my notes here was that printing and availability becomes an issue. Uh, the last couple of years, the price of cardstock has just gone absolutely nuts because of the pandemic and supply chain issues. So that's why you're seeing people getting in fights and getting stabbed over Pokemon cards at Target is because the, the resale market has just gone absolutely nuts. And especially if you're a fan of particularly games that are no longer in print, um, as those cards eventually waste away and or get hoarded somewhere and forgotten in an attic uh those cards they just get harder and harder to find and you know once those cards are gone the game is essentially gone as far as the future of the format things moving more and more online could be good or bad because really all you've got to do is flip the switch on a server to say this game is no longer playable i don't know what i was trying to make with that point but 
CCGs, they're starting to move more and more online, which from an accessibility standpoint is good. I play a lot more Magic using Arena than I actually do in person, and the more games is better. So you may start to see the PC space start to dominate. I don't think anymore that they're necessarily going to get pushed out by LCGs, just specifically because of the accessibility issue that you pointed out. Um, LCGs, you're still going to need a fairly hefty upfront cost for a game that you may not necessarily be playing in two years, whereas if you put $10 on Magic, you're probably going to play it for the next 20 years. Who knows? So yeah, that's CCG. Sorry, was... I've played a lot of them. I'm a easily easily enticed fad follower. So I've dipped my hand into more than one of these games. Every once in a while, I do find one that I'm like, hey, we should try that. And trying to be a game advocate is difficult, so I'm not always successful in finding new players. But yeah, CCGs, they're the ones that I probably play the most. A little less so for me. Um, at least these days. I played them a lot in middle school, high school, but I never played Magic competitively. I have played some Keyforge competitively, although the pandemic has really put a damper on that. Yep. I like a lot of the elements that were introduced in that. I think it has a lot of interesting mechanics, and I'm interested to see what happens to that game, if they can keep that going. Yeah, particularly with their reboot, I want to know. I want to know exactly what they're doing because I don't want it to turn into a Gwent where all of a sudden the game is radically different. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about them. What they're doing with it right now. So hopefully, just just tweaking the algorithm so they get less hilariously offensive names for the decks. Yeah, the randomized deck names led to some very silly things. Yep. Which I kind of enjoyed, but I'm sure they have corporate reasons for doing stuff. I mean, I would I would take a hilarious name and keep it, even though that even though it's been banned. Since if you have a name that they decide, oh, we're not gonna allow that one to be played in tournament, you could send it back to them and they'll send you two free decks. But I don't know the novelty of it. It's nothing like ridiculously offensive. Like there's no slurs or anything in the title, but the names can be overly suggestive sometimes. And I think it would be funnier just to keep that and just be like, you know what, this is my casual play deck. It doesn't go to tournaments. Yeah, it's a, it's a game that demands an, an entire episode. So I think that's collectible card games, CCGs. Pretty much. Trading card games, deck... Nah, not really deck building games. That's another episode for another time. Uh, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And Ed, I believe, again, you have the board game this week. You have seized control of the radio station, and now you have to continue it. Yep. We have taken control of the state. The Knolls have risen, and we are now the the dictatorship of the Nolitariat. The game that uh, I'm going to continue talking about this week is Space Hulk, which, for those of you who have spent the last 11 weeks listening to us rip on 40k, uh, may be slightly surprised by, because Space Hulk compared to 40k, is actually a good game. Space Hulk 1st Edition came out in 1989. The idea is that you are a squad of Space Marine Terminators infiltrating a spaceship called a Space Hulk, which is a gigantic amalgamation of spaceships and space junk that have collected together and are 
now hiding various objects of interest and aliens. So one player plays as the Tyranid Gene Stealers, the second player plays as Space Marine Terminators. Uh, each player is going to have a goal, usually to get to some room or destroy some item or other uh, piece that the opponent is playing with. Depending on which scenario you're playing, you will have a different layout for the board. Um, everything is divided up into corridors with rooms that are uh, nine spaces wide. And the big gimmick of this game is that your Terminators are beefy and powerful, but they can't move or see for shit. So everything kind of turns into an extended scene from Aliens as your guys are trying to make your, their way down a hallway and constantly getting ambushed by gene stealers. Yeah, I would say it's a very interesting game because it's an asymmetrical... It's really a board game. You could do it without the models. The models are not needed at all. You could just use tokens. The models just make it cool. It's asymmetrical. It clearly draws most of its inspiration from Alien and Aliens because it's a squad of armored super soldier dudes going through a facility or corridors or whatever, getting ambushed by monstrous bug-like aliens that tear them apart. Yep. For the most part, uh, the gene stealers are constantly spawning, so you can't ever really just wipe out all the Tyranids unless it's part of the win condition for that scenario. You're always going to be at risk of getting ambushed. You can only see little blips around the map, which may or may not have actual Tyranids on them. And until you can see them or otherwise identify them, you don't necessarily know what's going to be around the corner. The facing of your players matters. If one of your space Marines gets attacked from behind by a gene stealer, they're pretty much dead. It's had a couple of additions since it originally came out. The most recent edition is a reprint that came out in 2014. Um, I believe that's the edition that I have. Has, has had a few rule tweaks, rule tweaks since uh, the original version came out and some uh, changes to the graphical assets. They've introduced a couple of different scenario expansions. There's like Dark Angels, Space Wolves, Ultramarines, and they get different abilities because they're different, uh, different groups of Space Marines. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun game. It's quite difficult, especially if you're playing as the Space Marines. It's a lot harder than you would think it is. Uh, the traditional way to play it is you'll play one game, and then after that you will flip, flip sides and play the uh, same scenario again. There have been a couple of video game adaptations of it. There was one, 2014, I guess is the same year that the most recent edition came out, that's uh, Space Hulk Ascension. It's essentially a, a one-for-one translation of the Space Hulk game into the PC, except it's got a cool... Uh, mode where you can see like night vision video footage from the uh, space marines as they're walking down the hall and it's surprisingly tense yeah play space hulk if you're not a fan of 40k as a game but you are a fan of the 40k universe like we are it's a good way to get some of that 40k flavor i think the reason we can dislike games workshop but like space hulk is because Space Hulk is not a new game. Space Hulk is an old Games Workshop game from back when they were interested in making games that were fun to play and not just selling the most expensive new models that they could. It would be nice if uh, 
they had some more continuing support for it. I don't necessarily know if they would need a new edition, but if they had come out with some additional campaign books like they did for uh, the first and second editions, they had extra sets, extra rule books that would add more stuff to your game. That would be kind of nice, but I get the feeling that Games Workshop is kind of done with their experiments in standalone board games. They seem to have kind of run through that. They don't seem to be doing anything interesting in that space lately. Well, they announced, uh, they, uh, what was it, the Cursed City came out last year, and that was well-received, and they just announced a reprint for it. So they are still making them. It just seems like they've slowed down quite a bit with the production of them. So yeah, if they're coming out with maybe one a year, and the, I think the biggest issue with the new one, with these games, is actually cost. They are big, chunky boxes because they have a lot of miniatures, and they're real expensive, and then you gotta assemble and paint the miniatures because they don't look great just bare plastic because Games Workshop does not make stuff that looks great as bare plastic. Yeah, compared to uh, CCGs, uh, ease of access is not a Games Workshop strong point. Yes, and so, yeah, I, the game is requires a lot of setup and a lot of prep work before you can even play it. Even though it's fun, I would only recommend it if you already like that. Yeah, I'm sure we'll probably do an entire episode on miniatures in board games in general. But as you said earlier, Space Hulk would play absolutely no differently if they just had uh, chipboard tokens with facings on them. And the game would probably cost significantly less. Or even like meeples. Okay, I like that. I want to play, play Space Hulk with meeples now. Little chibi space marines. I know the local game store has, like, loose meeples. <laughs> nice. So we might pick some up the next time we're there, and we can uh, play Space Hulk using those rather than the fully painted miniatures. I'll have to see if I can, like, if I can make a little uh, 3D model of a xenomorph meeple and 3D print that. Yeah, that'd be pretty great. There's also, there's been a couple of games that are similar to Space Hulk. They made one that was specifically Aliens vs. Predator that I wanted to try, but I haven't been able to find it at a reasonable price. But it's essentially Space Hulk with uh, three factions, and it actually looks quite interesting. I know there's currently published, I think, by Gale Force 9 games and Aliens Colonial Marines. Yep, Glorious Day in the Core. Yeah, uh, that is a similar thing, except the aliens are, I think, fully AI-controlled, and players can pick which marine they are controlling. Yep. I saw a... Uh... And the marines all have a lot more personality and individual effects, whereas the space, uh, space marine terminators are very much generic troops. I actually saw a set of the uh, plastic xenomorphs for Glorious Day in the Core at our local comic book shop. And then uh, one day I went to go back and get them and they were all gone. I was very disappointed. Yeah, I would be willing to purchase a set of those to paint up. Those would be useful for anything. So yeah, that's my uh, very long-winded episode on CCGs and uh, Space Hulk. Well, that has been our episode. If you're interested in playing one of us on these games, perhaps Magic Arena or The Crucible for Keyforge or something else, 
hit us up on our social medias. You can find us on Twitter at, at NollCountry or on Instagram at NollCountry. Play more games if you want to play me at a Magic or Tabletop Simulator. I'm either under Animadness, same as my Instagram, or Blue underscore Sock at a Steam for Tabletop Simulator. Yeah. Also, if you want to join my one of my D and D games, we play Thursday nights at six p.m. and that's Pacific Standard Time because West Coast, Best Coast. Shoot me a direct message on Twitter, and if I have a spot available, I you know might let you join. Until next time play more games.